Welcome. You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and for this episode, our team had spoken to some very cool partner. First, they had some interesting conversations with partners in India about how they're ensuring safety and security from where they are during this pandemic. Plus, we have a discussion on the future of housing all the way in Denmark. And we're joined by a new faculty director. We're excited to share who that is, but first, let's go to India. This month, the MIT India program hosted a webinar with two program partners, Hank Levine and Anirudh Sharma. Hank Levine is a Sloan graduate and founder of iPlace USA. Levine founded iPlace in 2006, which has since grown to be the largest India-based recruiting firm. Here he describes the efforts of his recruiting team to simultaneously adjust to working remotely and, through hard work and innovative ideas, ensure people are still placed in jobs amidst the pandemic. I know that, um, you know, you've been able to sort of redeploy your all the 500 sort of recruiters to tackle the COVID-19 crisis. And so wondered if you could share just a little bit about that initiative as well. I would tell you it's been easy. Um, we haven't laid off anybody. And interestingly, we, we looked at the seventh largest recruiting companies in India and all of them have had huge layoffs for a huge reduction in, in pay. So we haven't done any of that. Uh, we, we have lost a lot of business, but fortunately, our company is set up across five different business units, and the nature of their business is absolutely different, and the work process is different. It gave us a lot of flexibility as we lost business to move people on other business units. Of course, um, you know, getting work is incredibly hard right now, so uh, we moved a whole bunch of people into sales. We did everything humanly possible to get new new work big campaigns on Google AdWords, on LinkedIn, all kind of email. And we were able to land a few significant contracts, which were really quite outside of anything we had done before. Uh, one big one was for essential workers for Walmart and Target and Frito-Lay. We make virtually no money for each person that we deploy there, but we were able to uh, set up this recruiting process so that it was nearly 100% automated. So we uh, tied up with some big companies like uh, Hilton, and Hilton would send out messages to all their furloughed workers, and their furloughed workers would apply directly into our applicant tracking system. And as far as uh, the interview process, it's about three minutes. Uh, you know, we were able to generate some business there. We got some business from big hospital chains, uh, placing nurses in about 200 locations. So that was a struggle. Um, a lot of the people recruiting the nurses, they came from IT background, so we, you know, didn't have great experience, but we have a very good uh, online learning management system called Town LMS, so we did, you know, credit training modules, and we've been pledging nurses. Nurses are extremely hard to find, but if you find them, you can get them placed super fast right now, faster than ever. So, you know, those big projects, uh, it's been a struggle, but we've been able to land some big projects and keep everyone working. The, the incredible thing is our employees really love the company. It's very, it's, it's really makes me feel great. They, they know that all their friends are getting laid off. They know that all the recruiting companies are laying people off and we haven't. And they've seen that we've lost a lot of business, not because our clients were unhappy, but they are just having furloughs and laying people off so they're not going to need recruiting. And so uh, one of our applications we have is Yammer. It's an internal social media site by the Microsoft suite. And the employees just started talking among themselves and they were basically saying the company has been so good to us that we need to bring revenue to the company. So let's all work on over the weekend. 
And two weekends ago, over 70% of our recruiters worked both days, the entire day, without being told to. The last week, it was about a little, about 35% of them did. They are rising up and, and doing, doing whatever they can. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's great to hear um, how the, the loyalty and, and folks really kind of shouldering on at a, at a time like this. Um, so that's wonderful. Anirudh Sharma is a 2014 Sloan graduate and founder of Graviki Labs, an MIT-incubated startup. The company has developed technology that captures carbon emissions and other types of pollution and converts them into usable materials that can offset environmental impact. Sharma actually met his co-founder Nitesh Kadyan while participating in MIT India's Global Startup Labs program. Here, Sharma spoke about collaborating with experts across different disciplines to provide low-cost PPE kits all over India. Tell us more about um, your time at MIT and what was your experience working at MIT Media Labs? Uh, right, Mega. thank you. So I was at Patty Mix's group uh, in MIT Media Lab where I was kind of working on manufacturing, like looking at new ways in which how you, you, can, you can do manufacturing by using augmented and virtual reality. But my focus kind of shifted towards like application of deep technology to kind of uh, apply to social impact. Uh, I've never worked in, in, in the past on anything related to with Corona or anything related with pandemics, but there was some overlap we found because a lot of work we do currently is about uh, air pollution. So what we do is essentially as a startup is we, we, we capture air pollution before it enters the environment and we take the carbon emissions out of them and turn it into new materials. So it's a group of material science, scientists that apply material science on carbon emissions that come from agricultural waste. It comes from diesel generators and all the effluents. And what was interesting was this kind of connection where the pollution also is a pandemic, is, is a problem that travels like it's a problem because you you inhale it uh, through your uh, uh, through your nose and uh, in a similar fashion coronavirus also like travels through your uh, it's a respiratory problem so kind of when this whole thing broke out since we are doing this whole air pollution recycling thing and circular economy there was a good overlap and we thought hmm, that the why, the reason why there's PPE shortage around India right now is because it's not that the manufacturers cannot produce, it's because the supply chain is completely broken. The supply chains, and the reason why it happens is that before, before the pandemic broke out, N95 was only a mask, like I'm, I'm, I mean, probably have seen these ones. Uh, these were masks that were only being produced by a couple of companies like 3M and, uh, but the problem is <clears throat> that the processes are only done in some parts of the world, like China. And now because supply chain was broken, we thought, how do we kind of free the supply chain in a way that like with the components that are available in a city, for example, in Mumbai, how can you produce a local ecosystem that can produce these PP kits really, really fast? So uh, a, a bunch of uh, people got together and we thought, huh, uh, if you look at what, what goes inside a PPE kit, like it's very simple, right? Like there's a mask, there's a body covering suit. Now a mask is has to filter out like 95% of the bacteria, like filter it. Speaking in a very raw term, um, we thought like, yeah, that's a great slideshow. That think about where is the similar efficiency of raw material actually used? So we thought, huh, air conditioning is a great example. Now the air conditioning supply chain, which is virtually every car filter has air conditioner. So it's in every city. 
And a similar efficiency filter is available in cars, which is available in every city. So what if you can like not make N95, but if you can make like uh, put together N95 with things that are readily available. So Uttam, who's a uh, graduate student at New York University, he showed me, that's him in the picture right now. And Uttam, who was in New York, uh, who understood what we're trying to do, he said, okay, let me order a bunch of HEPA filters, which are used in car ACs, and which are available around the world, and put together a mask that can be produced. And then we said, like, as a company, what we do is we turn carbon emissions into a grade of filter that can kill viruses and filter more effectively. So what if we can put these readily available things together and create a relief effort? It's pretty early on right now. We are still looking for contributors, a completely open source project. And later what happened was if you look at a bodysuit, every city has, has access to, I would say, uh, small manufacturers, SMEs, uh, who make raincoats. So everything you are see, seeing that Uttam is wearing in this picture right now is locally sourced from cities. These are surgical masks. And we did like quick modifications. How about if you just use like basic rubber bands, put together this mask that is made from uh, from recycling, for, from by reusing the HEPA filters that are used in air conditioners and make a quick face shield that is by made by cutting open a Coke bottle. So it's a great recycling method also. And there are enough Coke bottles as well. So the kind of like the whole exploration is built around the thesis that how do you how do you create these distributed manufacturing uh, uh, specifications that small and medium level manufacturers in smaller cities can adopt and produce PPE equipment, freeing the conventional supply chain that is very dependent on centralized manufacturers, which is completely broken right now. So I think it gives us a great opportunity to think about what the future is like, because future is not just about like uh, the way things have been. I think it's time that people will start thinking about circular economy in a new way. So that was the project about, I think we are we, are, we have just sent our kits uh, right now for testing. So a couple of labs have volunteered to test. And as soon as we have the specifications for uh, uh, the efficiency and all, we're going to put it online and let these specifications be free to be used by anybody around the world. Uh, that's the whole idea. And it was a good example because uh, also because we have never, like we are a lab, we work on material science, but so many people came together to help out. Sumit himself, who's on the call right now, he took a lot of uh, effort in helping us out. People who have not met each other are contributing like technical specifications of what this design can be, what that design can be. It was it was a great effort in community building around technology and bringing people from various levels of expertise and 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 putting something together. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to know how people from different uh, walks of life and different sectors have come up to uh, work together. Um, also, I it is I'm curious to know um, since everything is being operated locally and in India, you have very different local environment. You need to figure out very different things if you compare at least two cities. So what sort of challenges uh, did you face um, in actually operating at local level rather than at a mass level? You mean with respect to this project? Yes, with, with respect oh, to this project. So interestingly, the whole project, which is now, I think we have a good community of like at least like 100 people have come together, uh, a core team of five, seven 
core contributors. None of us have met each other. And the interesting thing was we're designing it for, uh, like, it was like, there were so many constraints to it. Like we cannot, because I cannot order things right now online. If we had our tools, we could have built something together in the lab, but it was basically utilizing this time with constraints to best of our efficiencies. So people in New York are ordering things and prototyping them for the specifications that we need in India, which was really fascinating. So, because if you see the way innovation works in like conventional ecosystems, it's very top down. You, de you design the specifications and then, then you design, uh, then, then there's a certain hierarchy to implementing it. Here it was very bottom up, like just a team of people with certain different skill sets came together uh, with a very simple cause that there's a massive PPE shortage because supply chains are broken. So let us cleverly think about repurposing things that are already around us. So it was very challenging, but I think we did really well as a team. People were, wherever people were, they contributed through whatever means they had. And it's all going well. The movement is like, it's building into a, into a, into a beautiful open source movement that hopefully gets implemented. Um, and it's designed around like small towns. Like for example, what is gonna happen in a small town in Argentina versus what is gonna happen in a small town in Southern India where there is no reach to conventional PPE that comes from 3M. So local manufacturers, because if you see, think about the strengths that a country like India would have as textile manufacturing. So if you just modify certain facets on existing textiles manufacturing lines, you can modify them to be able to be self-sufficient to be useful in these pandemic times. So uh, that's a great learning experience for us. Uh, um, and it goes beyond just like making PPE, yeah. Next up is a suite of songs for you. This is Romanian Folk Dances by Hungarian composer Bela Bartok, played by Dutch violinist Janine Jensen.
Next, we make our way up to Denmark, where people are thinking about the future of cities. Though 66% of families in Denmark are traditional nuclear families living together, 44% are either co-parenting, single, in an open relationship, or in another living arrangement. The type of housing that will be built needs to adapt. And we can't forget about things like climate change and COVID. So what can city planners and architects do? How can housing be more flexible for an unknown future? Offrey Aaron, architect and PhD at Ramble, a consultancy in Denmark, discusses these questions and more during a talk and Q&A moderated by Janelle Knox-Hayes, Associate Professor of Economic Geography and Planning in the MIT Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Take a listen to Aaron's talk. I'm an architect from Rambul Architects here in Copenhagen. Uh, Rambul is a, <clears throat> a very, very big uh, house and family um, all over the world. Here in Copenhagen, we are 1,500 people, uh, and uh, Rambul Architects are 50, uh, a little part of the bigger machine. We work uh, very closely to the engineers and Rambul management. It's uh, very exciting uh, to work in this way. And today I would like to tell you about a conceptual project that we've been working on in the last uh, year or a little bit longer than a year. Uh, but before I start uh, to tell about the project, I would like to tell you very, very briefly about the housing market in Denmark. Uh, five uh, big cities in, in Denmark, uh, they're not as big as the big cities in the USA. <laughs> they are small, uh, big cities. Uh, and the rest of Denmark, it's a suburban area. And you can see here in this uh, slide, uh, in diagram uh, below, that uh, most of the dwelling in uh, Denmark are detached houses. And in the diagram on top, you can see the size uh, uh, per person, uh, square meters. Uh, and in detached houses, it's uh, almost uh, 60 uh, square meters. It's quite high. Uh, compared to uh, uh, European uh, countries. And just for your uh, information, there are five, about 5 million uh, people that live in Denmark and 1 million of them live in social housing. So this is a very brief uh, introduction to the housing market in Denmark. And now I will start telling about uh, the project that is called the Meta Living Housing for Changing Life Situations. <clears throat> As I said uh, before, we started with the project uh, about a year and a half ago um, when there was a big discussion in the media about families in Denmark, that it's almost uh, 50% of the fam Danish families that are not nuclear family. Uh, but when we look at the uh, floor plans of uh, housing uh, in Denmark from the last 100 years or a little bit more, we can see that uh, the same type of uh, house is being drawn again and again and again, uh, but actually our uh, target group has changed. Uh, a family of mother, father, and two, three kids, it's, it's not, uh, th th there are many other families. So for us, it was quite important to understand, so what, what are the needs of the families that are not nuclear family? Do they have the same needs? Uh, what are the uh, challenges? And this is why we started the project with a qualitative analysis uh, where we asked the families uh, about their needs, challenges, priorities, preferences. We had uh, a lot. I cannot tell it to you today because it's, uh, it will take too much time. Uh, but uh, we had a lot about uh, how they want to live, what kind of house, what kind of community life, what kind of neighborhood they would like uh, to, to have. And we um, organized it to in, on, under three categories of place, residence and common. And this is how how we develop the concept of uh, metal uh, living. And we have these uh, values, these four important uh, 
the values that it's a uh, uh, live small, uh, live um, according to your needs, uh, more uh, being more together and more functions. And this is why it's also called uh, meta living. It's not just the house, uh, it's not just the dwelling, but it's uh, the house in an environment that is a good living uh, environment. Uh, and now I will tell about uh, the concept uh, and it's structured by the three categories that we heard from the families and I start with the place. Um, and the idea of the concept that it's a concept that can be built um, <clears throat> anywhere. Uh, it can uh, uh, change, the scale can change after need, uh, location, economy uh, and wishes and also uh, related to uh, uh, collaborations. <clears throat> and what we had a lot from the families um, is that uh, because it's not the nuclear family and it's often single parents, they need to, they want to live close to other functions because if they don't uh, live close to the fitness, then they will not go and do sport. Uh, if they don't uh, live close to the hairdresser, they will not get a nice, and I'm just saying, but it, they need to have like a, 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 a they need to live near to the uh, other functions, uh, basic functions. So for us, we translated it to uh, that what we want to do with this concept is to densify the existing. Uh, it doesn't give meaning to build uh, 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 living areas for these families somewhere uh, um, out of the city. We want to bring them into the city to densify the city and to improve uh, the uh, existing environment, both physically and socially. So to improve the community life and not to create an area that is closed only to these families, but also families that live nearby can also use it or other uh, people that live nearby. And then uh, these are the elements that we can densify with. It could be a building or add-on or small uh, buildings. And these are different typologies that can be streets or block or freestanding uh, building. It can be a new building or it can be uh, uh, an infill uh, in the existing that is the white in these diagrams. In the second category is uh, the residence, the house, uh, and uh, the idea is that uh, the dwelling, they take 80% uh, of the structure and the rest is the common uh, facilities that I will get back to it. It's the third category. And um, what we heard a lot from the families is that uh, their uh, needs uh, change all the time. In Denmark, it's very common that when you are divorced and you have kids, uh, you uh, share the kids one week, one week. So your needs actually change every other week. Uh, uh, but also uh, they talk a lot about uh, when the kids are small, they have like this kind of needs. And when the kids grow, they have this kind of needs. And with teenage, it's this kind. So it's also the kids grow and this changes the needs. And it's of course not just uh, uh, the, uh, it's all kind of families, also the nuclear families. Uh, so, and then when, if they meet a new uh, girlfriend or boyfriend and they also have kids and they also, so th there are many things uh, that change uh, in the short and long term. And we wanted to give them an answer to these changes uh, so, so they can stay and live in the same place and follow their needs. Uh, and what we did is uh, with the uh, modular uh, uh, building system, uh, we created this kind of system that are these models that stand uh, next to each other. Uh, one of them has the uh, kitchen and the toilet and the other one is uh, just rooms. And then by placing them next to each other and uh, some very simple uh, um, system of where there is a wall and where there is an opening, we created this uh, uh, system that can uh, have houses in different sizes. And now I will show you uh, examples of these houses. 
uh, or apartments. Um, <clears throat> it's two apartments uh, and we used uh, the people that we interviewed in our qualitative analysis as scenarios. Uh, so we have a, mother, a single mother that is called Mire with uh, one child and Jacob that uh, is a single father with three kids. And Jacob has the kids every other week and Mere lives with the child uh, uh, all the time. Uh, and they both, in the interviews, they both said that uh, uh, they, when the kids uh, go to sleep, they uh, miss a place and the company uh, to sit in the evening with somebody, with somebody and drink a glass of wine. Uh, and they also uh, made a talk about her economical um, barriers, that she can't have a big house. Uh, so what we did here, we drew a house that is very uh, small apartment here, the, the orange one. Uh, and she has the living room uh, uh, here uh, during the day and then in the evening she opens the sofa and sleeps there. Uh, and Jacob has here uh, the apartment with three very, very small uh, uh, rooms for the kids. And this is also because that we heard from them that uh, it's very important that the kids have their own room, um, even though they don't uh, live at the house the, uh, all the time. It's important that they have their own niche, but it doesn't have to be big. Uh, so we found some really very compact living solutions uh, to, to be able to have three niches uh, for the kids. Um, and this is a, like a shared living room where they can sit uh, together at the evenings. They can also, the kids can play together because one of the things we also heard that uh, the single parents that they have one child, they don't have sisters and brothers. So the, uh, the kid can play with the, the kids that uh, uh, live here. Uh, and also Mary, because she lives so small, uh, she can make, uh, make an appointment with Jacob that uh, she uses the uh, shared uh, living room, for example, on Wednesday when she get, has some guests. So it gives some possibilities to different kind of uh, uh, connection between the neighbors. And this is a, a shared uh, uh, guest room uh, for all the people that live in the building. And this is a scenario that we made for 2020. And then what we heard from the families that the change, the needs change. Uh, so we made a, a scenario also for 2025. And we, we got, we had a little bit of fun with it. So we made some scenarios uh, ourselves that Meta had a, a boyfriend and they got a baby and Jakob got a new girlfriend and she also has kids. So they needed to have many, many <laughs> uh, children, uh, rooms for the children, there are four. Uh, uh, and then in uh, 2030, um, they also, they again changed, uh, Mede's apartment became bigger and Jacob's became smaller because he got separated from his girlfriend. And it's, it's, the story is not, it's just a little bit of a gossipy and it's funny, but, but it's just for to show uh, that, uh, uh, for example, this room that used to be Jacob's, now it becomes Mede's and she opened the wall here and, uh, and and we made really like kind of a, a draw. A, we, we drew it. Uh, how can it be possible to make it uh, very easy that either you put the wall or you remove the wall? Um, and these are all the sizes of the apartments uh, that can be done in this uh, system. Uh, that is from uh, uh, 50 square meters to almost uh, 140. The third category is the common uh, common facilities, uh, which is uh, between uh, 15 and 20 uh, uh, percent of the structure. Uh, and it's important for me to say that even though we focus to the families and the not nuclear uh, families, uh, everybody is welcome to live in this uh, structure. And we actually uh, research shows that if you want to create good community life and good interaction between the neighbors, uh, 
the uh, people that live there should be more mixed. Uh, and we also think that uh, the grandparents maybe want to move to live next to the families or uh, kids uh, that were teenagers and now they uh, grew and they want to leave the house but stay close to the mother. They can also stay there. So uh, it's open for different kind of target groups. <clears throat> and here, uh, I don't know if you can see it because I can see our windows on this list, but you can see some of the list uh, of what uh, the families, what they told us they, they, they could think of uh, sharing. Uh, it's the um, yeah, wishing <laughs> list. Um, and uh, when we drew some of them just for to show, for example, it can be a common room when they do a birthdays for the, uh, together. Uh, and uh, the, it can be an office uh, community, uh, which is very relevant today when we see how much we work from home and you want to work from home, but still have a little bit of company. So the company is not your colleagues, but it's your neighbors. Um, and it's, it can be a flex room uh, and it can be a micro, body, uh, a micro house which is, um, for example, if, if uh, the, the parents get divorced and they need like a house uh, very quickly, or if the grandparents want to come to visit, or the teenage kid wants to come to visit, left the house and wants to come to visit, so yeah. Uh, and then the idea is that there are different degrees of uh, how uh, public or private it is. As I said before, we want to uh, give these facilities also to the people that live uh, in the area and not just the people that live <clears throat> in the site. Uh, and we thought that the, uh, fellas, uh, the common uh, facilities that are in the ground floor, uh, they are public uh, also for the people that live in the area. For example, the office community or the common room, they could be public. And the uh, uh, facilities that are higher in the building, there are private or semi-private for the neighbors that live in the area. Uh, and this is also for uh, to create to give them the possibility to interact between them, but not with the others. So it uh, it uh, str can strengthen their uh, belonging. Um, and everything, the idea is that everything can be controlled by an app uh, from uh, small things of uh, like, for example, a mother that has uh, five kids every other week, but wants to make a homework, sit and make homework with one of uh, the kids and doesn't have the space for it, then she can book uh, this uh, flex, uh, flex room um, for one hour. Or it can also be that you book uh, the room next to you for the coming five years. So everything uh, is controlled by a uh, app that we called it a smart house like smart city and now i would like to end with the uh, three cases that uh, i guess for you it's uh, very interesting to see uh, so what does it mean and how can it look uh, this uh, concept um, and we uh, we we drew these uh, uh, cases as hypothetical cases and now we are trying to actually see possibilities if, if we can build them uh, so it's a uh, the process of this con the project was a little bit uh, different than normal projects that we get the assignment. Um, the, the three sites, they represent uh, our uh, uh, thoughts of where this uh, concept can be realized. One of them is in a suburban area. Uh, it's uh, this one. Um, it's the close to the train station. Uh, and it's uh, uh, an area, there are few buildings in it, but it's an um, open uh, site. The other one is in uh, uh, the center of Copenhagen. Uh, there are two uh, blocks here, uh, parallel blocks, uh, and we densified it. I will show it in a second. And the third one is uh, on top of a shopping center. And we did it a little bit to provoke for to show when we talk about uh, uh, density and densifying. Um, 
then we can also do it in this area, in these sites that are not the classic uh, sites for uh, to get an assignment as uh, architects. And this project uh, was done, as I said before, before the uh, uh, COVID-19, uh, and then inspired by what we experienced in this uh, time, we uh, wrote uh, an application to another project that is looking at uh, meta living uh, out uh, in the uh, province and in these areas that actually. Uh, I think shrinking cities would be a little bit too wild to call these areas because it's a very small uh, um, uh, villages, but they really experience that nobody wants to live there and some houses are left uh, uh, empty and uh, some schools are closed. Uh, so we thought that if we bring this concept that has everything in it, that it's not just houses, but it's this meta living, uh, then uh, why can't we uh, also uh, grow uh, out of uh, Copenhagen and uh, just make sure that the people have uh, like uh, a place where they can work and a good internet connection. Uh, we, we wrote an application. I think we still have to look uh, how can you make it sustainable? This is, I think, a good question. But uh, uh, yeah, this would be something that I hope we will uh, solve when we get the project. Finally, we have an interview with Evan Lieberman, the new faculty director for the MIT Africa program. In his interview with Managing Director Ari Jakobowicz, they talked about what they're looking forward to for the program. Evan Lieberman is a professor of political science and contemporary Africa. He conducts research in the field of comparative politics with a focus on development and ethnic conflict in sub-Saharan Africa. Lieberman received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. Professor uh, Evan Lieberman, welcome to the uh, Misty Radio podcast. Uh, thanks, Ari. Good to be with you. All right. So you are the new uh, faculty director of the MIT Africa program at MISTI. Uh, so it's awesome to have you on board working with the MISTI program. Uh, can you just start by talking about what is exciting to you about uh, the program and uh, why you think students should also be excited about opportunities in Africa? Sure, great. Well, I am really excited about getting started and getting started working with you, Ari. Um, and as you know, uh, Hazel Siv has been the faculty director for, for several years, and you know, she's really uh, uh, helped make a, a fantastic program with lots of terrific opportunities. And I've been working on Africa and Africa-related projects and programs since, particularly since I was in high school. Um, but I'll say that, you know, when I was in in college, um, I had the opportunity um, when researching my undergraduate thesis to go to South Africa, and it was you know just completely life changing for me. You know, it was one thing to study about a foreign place, be interested, and read about the politics. You know, when I was in college, it was a big time of transition for South Africa. Um, but going there and meeting people, making friends, seeing what it was really like offered me an opportunity of connection that, that you know, carried me to this day where you know, I've continued to want to do research and to travel there. And while I was on the faculty at Princeton for several years, I was involved with a, a program called Princeton in Africa. We sent a lot of students to, to Africa um, kind of in, in the years after they graduated. And coming to MIT, it's super exciting to see a similar kind of program, but one that's uniquely MIT in that, you know, we have all these students from MISTI who are going around the world, lots of different regions, but very exciting that they're going to Africa to work 
in labs, they're working on startups, they're teaching, they are working in businesses, they're working in non-government organizations, and they're bringing their skills and energy to these organizations. Um, and so I think it's exciting for them, but it's really a great opportunity. The students who I've met, and again, I have, um, as you know, I'm just entering into this project, but the students I know who've uh, participated in Misty Africa, I've wanted to do it again. They just said it was fantastic and I've had them in my classes. So I'm really excited about uh, working on the project, taking up the, the, the start that you and, and Hazel have uh, initiated and, and building it out into some new and exciting ways. Going back to your first trip to South Africa, what year was it that you were there initially? Are you gonna, are you gonna date me here? You gonna I'm not dating you, you. I'm trying to. I'm trying to frame it against the fall of apartheid. To understand. Oh, okay. Just about the politics and history. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, that was 1991 was my first trip. Okay. So apartheid was still happening. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the it was in that very uh, interesting transition phase and that Mandela was released in February of 1990. And it was during the process of negotiations. Um, and in fact, on one of our trips, so I went there with a class and on one of our trips from Cape Town, from Joburg to Cape Town, the airport, Cape Town airport was socked in. So we got delayed and Mandela was about to board the same flight as ours. So we got to meet him in the airport. Um, but it was in the days in which apartheid was kind of coming apart. Um, there was actually a lot of violence in the country and there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future would be. And I know that now at MIT, you lead uh, the Global Diversity Lab, and you have many other research interests. Uh, can you talk a bit more about what you're doing there? Because it's very clear now to see how your experience initially in South Africa could lead you on the path that you are now on, sort of the turmoil there between the different racial groups and to your research and studying um, diversity, particularly in South Africa. Great. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 set of experiences in that time period set me up to be interested in a few important topics. One for sure is just diversity, right? You know, apartheid was about keeping different groups apart. I grew up in New York City, which was a place that you know was was pretty segregated when I was growing up in a lot of ways, and uh, you know, our own past United States is one of a lot of racial segregation and you know those were kind of uncomfortable and unpleasant truths um, and so trying to watch and observe how a society could manage that past and and try and create a more productive future well that's not unique to south africa of course that's unique to a lot of african countries to the united states to india to a lot of other places so that's been a big theme of my work of how do you how do you manage diversity and not just manage it or tolerate it, but how do you use it for good? Because some of the most interesting and exciting places in the world, whether it's Cambridge, Massachusetts, or New York City, or London, are, are places that are filled with very diverse populations. Um, so how do, how do what, is, what is the kind of secret sauce that makes those places so dynamic, but sometimes diversity is the basis for conflict? So that's one really important theme. That's, that's cut throughout my work and research up until the, this day. And then the second is kind of the intrinsic value of democracy. Um, you know, to a degree, South Africa ha had something that resembled a democracy before 1994. It just happened to be a democracy limited to 20% of the population, 
And that's, you know, I think we can agree that that's not really a democracy. Um, so how, like in so many other African countries that, that really changed their politics in the 1990s, how, how well does democracy work? And, and that's been critically important. And you know, while, while there are challenges in a lot of these countries, a lot of these democratic projects have been remarkably successful in Africa. And so understanding how those work, how people's interests get represented, and whether it helps to improve people's lives has been a big subject of my research and my teaching. You sort of alluded to different successful projects across other African countries. So for now, we've been focusing on South Africa. But uh, just let's step back a bit and look at sort of the broader African continent, the really interesting places that um, you've worked and research that you think have uh, really been successful in their implementation of uh, democracy? Well, you know, certainly one place that stands out in the world, of course, is Botswana. Um, you know, uh, South Africa's neighbor that, that shares a lot of similarities, but, a, but an important difference is that they adopted democratic practices uh, in the 1960s in, at independence. And that country remains really, you know, a stable and relatively, relatively prosperous uh, place. Um, it's the lead party, the BDP, has been in power since independence, and, and that's a problem for the notion of democracy and, and, and you know, turnover of power. Um, and so they've actually had some real challenges in the past few years. But I think that's, that's still an exciting success story. Namibia, which is a country that was an outgrowth of South Africa and became independent um, also in, in 1990, has been a pretty successful democratic story. Um, I've done some work in Kenya and Tanzania, um, and those are interesting and important places, which have both, I think, had some challenges. I think Kenya is interesting and exciting because it's a dynamic place. Um, they've had experience with more or less democratic politics, and I've done some work there working with some NGOs, um, some research around whether you can try and promote more active citizenship to try and improve the quality of lives for ordinary people, particularly in rural areas around health and education. And, and similar sorts of, of concerns in Tanzania. I think that in Tanzania, I wish I, could, I wish I could call it a success story. I'm concerned about where things have gone in Tanzania in recent years, um, where the president has you know, increasingly been cracking down on civil liberties and uh, the ability to, to really challenge the regime in meaningful ways, um, including by limiting, limiting free speech. So those are also interesting and important areas for us to be studying. Some successes, some, some challenges remain for sure. So you know, for many years, and I think this is changing until recently, uh, has been changing recently, you know, I think Africa was thought of as this place that was sort of the basket case continent, not really worth your time thinking too much about or getting involved in. What do you think Africa's role sort of in the world is now? And where do you see it going in terms of its engagement in the broader global economy? Yeah, I think, I think that it's an exciting time to be thinking about and engaging with Lots of African countries. Um, you know, of course, Africa is a very diverse place, and there's as much variation within Africa, you know, as there is practically within the whole world. Um, and I think 
certain parts of Africa, you know, particularly in Central Africa, it's still going to be a little while before students and faculty and businesses are going to be able to engage um, in a really, you know, meaningful way. But large parts of Africa, you know, from Lagos to Johannesburg to Cape Town to Nairobi, there's a ton of dynamism and creativity and, you know, just active entrepreneurialism and new ideas coming out, new ideas about politics. I mean, the innovations around ideas of rights and human rights and what it means to lead a dignified life, I think are being reshaped by a lot of these young African democracies. Um, you know, some, some of our, um, I think it was Elaine uh, Kagan um, who talked about um, maybe it was a, maybe it was a different Supreme Court justice. I can't recall. You can edit this part out. There was a one of the, Amer <laughs> one of the American Supreme Court justices. Um, you know, many of them have talked about the uh, incredible example that the South African Constitution has provided in terms of progressive rights and thinking about the dignity of each human being, um, and in terms of new. Enterprises, as, as you know, East Africa has innovated around um, mobile financial transactions and M-Pesa. A lot of countries are using digital voting technologies. There are all sorts of ways in which African countries are innovating in, in ways that are certainly beyond what we're doing in the United States. Um, and so I'm excited when I speak to to, to our, our Dean for International Affairs, Richard Lester, about his interest in MIT's getting more involved and more connected to Africa, because I think not just scholars like myself who've, who, who've made a point of focusing on Africa, but researchers from a range of disciplines at MIT who aren't necessarily thinking about Africa per se might have great opportunities to partner with uh, various African institutions and individuals um, in, in really productive ways. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the pandemic that we're all sort of living through right now. You can, you can talk about this in terms of Africa or just sort of generally, but how has the experience and sort of what you're watching in the world now shifted your worldview? I know that's sort of like a heavy question, but we're all sort of watching all these things rapidly come undone before us. The price of oil going negative, for example. How do you think this shifted? Has, has something in your view of the world changed from what it was before we went into quarantine? Wow, you're right. Heavy question, Ari. Heavy question. <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. Um, okay. I, look, I think uh, being at home, I think I'm on day 43. Of, of being at home gives you a lot of time to think about and reflect on the world, which I think all of us um, are doing, you know, having to spend a little time. What's the meaning of life after all? Yeah. So, um, You're so a political science professor. Help us. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that this period of time, uh, not surprisingly, reveals uh, uh, both the great potential of of our common humanity, but also a lot of the, many of the, the, the limits and narrowness 
that that we're sometimes capable of. And I think, you know, if I want to f- focus, of course, that there are so many negative consequences to this pandemic, uh, not the least of which is the, the illness and the deaths uh, and the death toll that, that result from it. Um, you know, I think, I don't know that, that this pandemic will ever come close to taking the number of lives that the global AIDS pandemic took, particularly from Africa. Um, so I think in, in one interesting way, you know, sadly, the, the focus on this pandemic relative to how global AIDS hit Africa says a little something about how, how we as a, as a global community have undervalued African lives. And, 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 and that's, you know, that's a touch of sadness. I think there is the reality that we are all facing this very common threat, that we are all so interconnected that what happens in one place affects all of us so quickly and rapidly. And that there are so many ways in which we can all appreciate the efforts of other people, right? Never before, and I'm obviously saying something that that others have said, but I, I continue each day to appreciate the ways in which everyone from healthcare workers to supermarket workers to the people who keep our internet going um, are doing such important jobs to make our lives meaningful and and productive um, and and we need to support those people and I wish that we could you know I, I think the challenge for us during and then certainly after this pandemic is going to be how given the ingenuity and wealth that we have on this planet at this moment, how do we share that to a greater extent so that when we have challenges that the most vulnerable aren't just completely left behind and devastated? Um, and I think, you know, I think that I hope that the biggest silver lining of this entire pandemic is the re- collective realization that we really need to do that, that it's not fair within our own society, locally or globally, that people should have to suffer so badly because they are vulnerable. We need to figure out ways to, to protect people and protect systems, you know, not to go so overboard that you know, all we do is worry about the future. Um, you know, we need to live in the present. We need to, to you know, do things in our lives. But, but right now, the extent of vulnerability and global inequality is just too great. And, and hopefully as societies as small as MIT, the state of Massachusetts, United States of America, and, and more broadly, maybe we'll use this time and this experience to rethink how we cooperate with one another and support one another. All right. Thank you, Evan. It's a great place to wrap up. I appreciate you joining us on the Misty Radio podcast. Thanks. It was great to chat with you, Ari. Thank you very much to Hank Levine, Anirudh Sharma, Afri Aaron, and Professor Evan Lieberman. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jakobowitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco de Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Quesar. Special thanks to Christina Davies for editing assistance. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcast. To close the show, we'll share a song from Japan for you. 
The song is called Ichidaiji by Japanese indie rock band Polka Dot Stingray. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Baby, I did.